Welcome to The Emma Gunn Show. Life's defining moments don't always feel that great when they're happening. In the moment, they can feel challenging, uncomfortable, difficult, impossible even. But with hindsight, they can take on a different shape. With the benefit of that 2020 perspective, we can begin to see how the most difficult times were a life lesson we didn't know we needed to learn. Each week, I ask my guests to share their biggest life learnings to date as we explore those difficult, swampy, infuriating times and how they shaped them, all from a comfortable distance that's afforded them the time to take the positive out of what might have seemed nothing but negative at the time. Because whether it's obstacles, challenges, risks, excuses, opportunities, successes, failures, or curveballs, they are the reason they are the person they are today, the person sitting in front of me on this episode of The Emma Gunn Show. You know, what's really interesting is I've always felt as somebody who never wanted to have children and who doesn't have children very much in the out group, you know, and I've kind of started using the term a reproductive to describe myself, the experience of being having a loved one in the grips of an addiction, for example, it's so frustrating not to be able to help them and to know that the only person who can really help them is themselves and the pain of experiencing their suffering with them is just it's too much to bear sometimes there is no one size fits answer one size fits all answer to these sorts of life transformations and behavior shifts that we all need to make at some point we can all get too attached to different behaviors thoughts beliefs some of which can become very toxic there's no negative to someone removing alcohol from their life, like none whatsoever. The human memory is a very slippery thing and it is constantly manipulating facts to protect us, ultimately. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My guest today is the author, journalist, and publishing consultant, Ruby Warrington. Ruby has occupied some of the most coveted jobs in journalism, including nearly four years as the features editor at the Sunday Times Style and founder of the online magazine, The Numinous. She has a unique ability to put into words what people are feeling, and her features, books, and posts often perfectly capture the zeitgeist. She created the term Sober Curious, which spearheaded a global movement for people to reevaluate their relationship with alcohol. And her new book, Women Without Kids, is perfectly timed and culturally relevant. Ruby was born in London and grew up between London and Suffolk and now lives in Miami. She earned a bachelor's degree in fashion promotion, majoring in magazine journalism from the London College of Fashion, University of the Arts, London. Choosing not to have children is, by some people's standards, a risk. And as regular listeners will know, this is how I like to open every conversation of the podcast, by asking my guests about their biggest risks. It's this gateway, it's the gateway to learning their life lessons, and I can't wait to hear Ruby's. Ruby Warrington, welcome to the Emma Gunn Show. Emma, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to you. First of all, we just got to say, you're in Miami, so we are doing a London to Miami call. And mm. I always think that... Um, having a different geographical location also just offers different perspective. 
Absolutely. Yes. I mean, Miami is like, I mean, I lived in, so I've lived in London and Suffolk, which are two very different environments for my upbringing. One sort of completely rural, free range childhood kind of running through fields. And then in London, obviously busy city, moved to New York in 2012, which in some ways shares a lot of similarities with New York, but attitudinally, I mean, with London, but attitudinally is quite different. Mm -hmm. And having been in Miami for the past year, it's like a completely different culture again. And I love it. I mean, we were kind of chatting about this a bit before we started recording, but I just feel like having had the opportunity to exist in these different sort of cultural spaces has yeah, made me possibly a more open-minded person. I mean, I think I'm quite natural, naturally quite an open-minded and curious, non-judgmental person anyway, mm-hmm. which is what's given me this kind of observer mindset that I've applied throughout my career, both in journalism and writing books. But um, yeah, living in different, among different cultures, it really, yeah, it opens your mind to the different ways that people live, that we can live, um, the different influences that shape us in different ways. So I'm really grateful that I've got to experience all of these different environments. Yes. And I think, as you say, all these different perspectives, being open-minded, I think that's why your books and your writing it, like you, you always, it's very easy to write for a small group of people, but it's much, much harder to write for more people. I think that's where you really are able to kind of hit your stride, don't you think? Well, I don't know. It's interesting. I was actually having a call with an agent yesterday and she was sort of reflecting on how my books have spoken to quite niche audiences, you know, and I think that actually one of the through lines of my work, particularly with my books, my first book was called Material Girl, Mystical World. And I was sort of writing about how, you know, subjects like astrology and tarot and intuition and mysticism can actually be very, very relevant to our modern lives and sort of trying to debunk in a way some of the woo-woo kind of flaky hippie connotations that have been attached to those subjects. And so that was quite sort of niche in a way because it was speaking to people who have an interest in those subjects. So we're curious, although it's, I mean, it could apply to, it could be absolutely relevant and is, I think, hyper-relevant to anybody who drinks alcohol Mm -hmm. (laughs) actually the the number of um quote-unquote normal drinkers meaning people whose drinking hasn't necessarily become so problematic that they have had to look at it the number of people who fall in that normal social drinker category who are actually kind of prepared or willing to go yeah maybe this isn't working for me is is quite small Mm -hmm. and then with women without kids you know what's really interesting is I've always felt as somebody who never wanted to have children and who doesn't have children very much in the out group, you know, very much the outsider. Um, oftentimes I felt like I'm the only one who feels this way. And of course, part of my books has been like helping me find other people who feel the same as I do. Um, but in my research, I discovered that actually in the US anyway, almost 50% of women aged 17 to 45 don't have children. Now, of course, many of those women may go on to have children, but it's actually quite, it's its its half of the female population at any one time mm-hmm. is childless or child-free or, you know, just doesn't have children. And so actually it's a much, even though it can feel like being in the out group, it's a much bigger group than we think, you know, that, that is perceived. But that said, I do think that speak writing a book for women without kids is still speaking to a relatively small cohort, you know, mm. because so many of those people who don't have children are what are called childless by circumstance, 
meaning possibly or probably will have children if and when the circumstances align um, or child that's not by choice, meaning they've had fertility issues um, and wouldn't necessarily see a book as kind of empowering this path or celebrating this path as quote unquote for them. So it's interesting as, as much as I see this book as super relevant to honestly everybody. And as you know, you've read it. I go yeah. really deep into very big picture themes that are influencing actually all of our procreative outcomes men and women and everybody in between um i think that the way it's positioned it probably will appeal primarily to a fairly small niche group of people <laughs> but it's one of those books that i would say to my friends who have children why don't you read this but equally also show me the book that from your perspective of whatever it might be and and let me see it because i can't I can't necessarily see your point of view. So I think it's quite a good exchange of information. It's the kind of thing you could point to someone and say, actually, if you've ever wondered what's going on with me, just read that. It's one of the reasons I wrote it, because for anyone who's either actively chosen not to have children or who is questioning whether or not they want to have children, what they will hear, and I know this because I heard it throughout my life, but why? But why don't you want children? Are you sure you know what you're talking about? Um, are you sure you won't regret it? Because I mm -hmm. think you'll probably regret it. You say you don't feel ready, but nobody ever feels ready. And in a way, my answer, because I'd always been very confident, confident is the wrong word, just comfortable, I suppose, in my own intuitive knowing that motherhood was not for me, had always just been, well, I just don't. But actually... <laughs> If you really want to know, there are so many deep reasons um, for me um, embodying this orientation, walking this path, having made this decision. Um, and so, yeah, there's so many really important conversations if if and when we're willing and ready to go there to be mm. had. And I actually, yes, I have been encouraging people to read this book with your non-mum friends, but read it with your mum friends, because actually there can be so much misunderstanding in, in under what I call the mummy binary, you know, the mums versus the non-mums. Often it's sort of set up that way and it can definitely feel that way because, yeah, there are lots of practical sort of logistical differences to our lives when we have children. And but actually that mummy binary can be incredibly divisive, incredibly toxic. And actually one of the things I wanted to do with the book was to, yeah, inspire people to have conversations that to break down some of those barriers, you know. I think the thing that always confused me a bit, little bit, or was a stumbling block for me is this idea that you're entitled to have children, that it's something you have to opt out of because if you don't, you are going to do it. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it's almost, I mean, I think motherhood, and I talk about this at length in the book, motherhood is very much positioned as women's biological imperative. There's mm. this notion that women are built to gestate birth and nurture babies you know this is our ultimate fulfillment it's what our bodies are made to do um and from a very very limited sort of biological perspective yes I suppose that is true <laughs> but it totally erases you know our psychology our personalities all the other external influences that will will and I'm not even going to say might but that will impact our desire and our capacity for parenthood you know mm -hmm. which are all very real considerations I, I don't necessarily put it in these terms in the book, but I sort of, even just reflecting on it now, I sort of feel like the biological component is maybe about 10% <laughs> of, you know, whether or not 
we end up becoming mothers or whether we end up deciding that is the right path for us. Um, But it's presented as sort of the be all and end all, you know, whereas so much, if not the whole of the feminist movement (laughs) has been about empowering women to divorce our sexuality from our reproductive capacity, because actually that, that very specific piece is what enables us to live our lives as men's equals. Because as much as, I mean, this is the other thing, like, you could, when you boil it down to biology, say that men, males are equally built for fatherhood. Males are built to father children, but there isn't by any means the same pressure um, on men to pursue that with their lives. Even if a child is the result of them having sex, there isn't nearly the same responsibility placed on their shoulders. I mean, I do think in some ways kind of more old fashioned attitudes, like, you know, if you, if you quote unquote, get somebody pregnant, then you have to marry them and take responsibility for that child was something that was, you know, popularized, but has sort of fallen by the wayside (laughs) in a way. And so there's this huge gender disparity when we talk about the biological imperative around parenthood. And that's something, yeah, that I unpack in the book. Mm. Yes. Okay. Right. We're, we're obviously you can tell we can really go in for this, but let's oh, let's can. let's talk about risk. I said in the uh, opening that risk. Some people would think the decision not to have children is a huge, huge risk. That's not the risk that you said, but maybe we'll talk about the risk that you did say and then come back to the quote unquote risk of not having children. But you said that your biggest risk was leaving in inverted commas your husband for seven months to go and edit a magazine <laughs> in Ibiza. <laughs> And so my question was, what was at stake? What was at stake by leaving for seven months? My marriage and the um, companionship and stability and commitment that came with that, you know? Um, so, yeah, I I proposed to my husband, <laughs> drunk, on February 29th, the leap year, um, in the year 2000 after we had been together for a year. Now, my parents had separated when I was very young. I'd never upheld marriage as something that was important. It wasn't something I aspired to. I'd never envisaged my wedding day, any of that sort of stuff. But I found myself just so overwhelmingly in love with this person. And truly, like there was just, a, a again, just a really deep knowing in me that this person would be in my life no matter what. That I was sort of bowled over by the romance for all proposed to him. <laughs> it took us another four years to get married. So we got married in 2003. And it was by 2007, which is around that sort of seven year itch mark, that some of the, it wasn't that the, it wasn't that I was any less in love with him, but just the realities, the practicalities of life had started to weigh on us. He was, we'd both been struggling with a lot of work stress. Um, I'm the kind of person who, if I find myself in a, in a stressful situation or a difficult situation, I will act pretty quickly to get myself out of that situation. And I guess I'm more prepared and willing to take a risk and just take a leap. If something's not working, let's just let it go, move on to try and find something else. Whereas he was in a work situation where he was just kind of heels dug in hating every minute of it, but refusing, as the, as I saw it, to do anything about it. Now, of course, he was more afraid of, of taking the risk. He had less, he was less empowered, partly by his upbringing, 
to sort of walk a more unconventional path and just kind of let go and see what happens. So he was really clinging on. And as his partner, I was bearing the brunt of that. I was the one who was living with the daily stress and 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 sort of absorbing all of his depression. And it was just really hard to live with. It was incredibly painful to see someone I loved so much suffering. And then incredibly frustrating to see him not doing anything about it. And I think, and it's interesting, it's even making me think about the way people the experience of being having a loved one in the grips of an addiction, for example, it's so frustrating not to be able to help them and to know that the only person who can really help them is themselves and the pain of experiencing their suffering with them is just, it's too much to bear sometimes. So I quit my job <laughs> and decided I was just going to go to Ibiza for the summer and maybe try and write a, write a book. But then I kind of, you know, I'd sort of, I knew a few people there, introduced myself to a few people. And it turns out the guy who produced Pasha magazine, which is like this very glossy coffee table magazine, um, lifestyle magazine about the island, was looking for an editor that summer. His regular editor wasn't going to be around. Um, and he asked if I'd be interested because I'd been had, you know, been working in magazines for a while and he knew that. And so I ended up just taking a leap, taking a massive risk, kind of just leaving my job, taking a massive risk, thinking this I, I just needed to get away I just needed to get out of my relationship for a while I just couldn't be witness to what he was experiencing anymore which some people might be listening and thinking well that's so cold that's so harsh but it's a very very challenging situation to be in um and then took a leap and sort of found myself with probably the cushiest job on the island you know getting paid with wads of cash out of the safe from passion nightclub every month <laughs> with a you know unlimited guest list to pretty much every party and club and event going um and as it happens my best friend decided that she would quite fancy the summer in Ibiza as well so we got an apartment together and it was incredibly liberating exciting it it gave me back. I'd been really, I'd been ready to quit journalism at that point. The job I'd been in previously, which was for, um, I'm going to name it. I don't think it exists anymore. It was called City AM. It was like a yes. financial, a free sheet to find that for the financial industries. And it was just so unbelievably toxic. <laughs> it had really made me like question whether I could continue working in newspapers. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, working for this magazine really revitalized my love of magazines, journalism, and I had the most incredible summer with the knowing that I was sort of saying to my husband, this is a, this is kind of a make or break. Like I can't, I don't know if I can be in this relationship if nothing changes, if you're not willing to do your part of kind of bringing some change here. Um, and it was, I don't know. Uh, yeah. He came, he, he came to visit a couple of times during the summer, but we didn't really have much contact other than that. Um, I just needed to kind of let him do him and me do me. And it took him another year or so to leave that job, even after I came back. It wasn't like an instant salve, but um, he did decide, I think it was, I'm trying to think when I came back, it was end of 2008. And I think it was the end of sort of almost a year after that, he decided to go off and um, travel for a year, sorry, a month. <laughs> he decided to go off and travel around South America on his own for a month, which he did. And it all kind of coincided with him finding a new job anyway. And it sort of all worked out. But yeah, it felt like a risk because I knew that 
this person who I really truly believed was my person. Um, yeah, I was risking losing him by saying to him, almost giving him an ultimatum, you need to, you need to sort yourself out because I don't know if I can be in this partnership. Um, if you're not willing to kind of, you know, make a change. And actually sometimes change is really difficult if Mm. things stay the same, if everything else is exactly the same and you're the one who has to make the change, it's, it's the thing that you can put off and postpone and just procrastinate on. So actually Mm. a big change, like you not being around every day Mm. is a shift in perspective that can be quite helpful. Mm -hmm. I mean, he knew he needed to get out, but he just couldn't see a way out. Right. And he wasn't prepared or able to just take a leap and take the risk. I think I had, okay, so I'm the, I'm probably the only person in my immediate family who's ever had like a full-time paid job. (laughs) My parents are quite bohemian, I suppose. Um, My mum never really had the opportunity because she never went to college. Like she never had anything like a career. She really just wanted to be, she just wanted to be a stay-at-home mum. My dad didn't want that kind of a relationship. So they broke up pretty early in their relationship and she was left literally holding the baby um they were amicable but he wasn't really around so she just kind of I don't know then had to take all sorts of jobs just to pay the bills and she did eventually end up um having a career in mental health services like she trained as a therapist and actually got her therapist sort of license in her 60s and my dad had always you know written books done a bit of lecturing here and there but he'd never had like a full-time nine-to-five my brother either so I was the only person who had really had that path but what I'd been modeled by them was actually a very entrepreneurial very just kind of make it work kind of DIY approach to work and career whereas my husband had been modeled a very kind of straight and narrow corporate Mm. ladder climbing that's that's how you do it that's what work is so I think the early modeling that we both had around work career etc even earning money was very different and that's what enabled me to be able to take a risk and trust that things would work out and it was much much harder for him Mm. to do that and I think if you are modeled that corporate life woe betide you if you say I don't want it or you want to take a break I I definitely that was definitely my model as well but I went into journalism but I, when you were talking about staying in a position that you don't want to be in you leap out you know the the frog in the pot Oh yeah. If you yeah, so if you boil a if you boil water on a stove and throw a frog in, the frog will jump out and save its own life. But if you put a frog in a this is for people who don't know what you do, cold pot and cook it, basically the frog won't jump out and won't save itself. And that was me in a in a in my dream job on a magazine job. Yeah. Because right. the situation just got worse and worse and worse over time. And I didn't jump out because I think I had been modeled if you've got a job, you, you, you don't quit it. Like you leave when the company closes down or when you retire, like that's it. Or when there's another better job to go to, yes. because also woe betide mm. you if you decide to go and work in a supermarket or something yes. like, after you've, after you've achieved a certain level of quote unquote success or status or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gosh, absolutely. So, so actually you've got two, two very different attitudes to risk, but mm. you kind of both got to the same place that you needed to get to. Well, I mean, so he ultimately another job did come along for him and it was a much more exciting, much more aligned position. So he got to take this month off, do his bit of traveling, 
get that out of his system, balance the scales a bit with me having had my summer in Ibiza. Did he grow some, some facial South hair? America. <laughs> yeah, did a lot of couch surfing. <laughs> um, then he got, got this new job, which actually led to the job in New York. But, I mean, he's actually working on a project at the moment called My Corporate Hell, which is about how mm. um, how much of a prison that corporate mindset can be. Um, and he actually only finally quit corporate hell in 2019, like a year before the pandemic, which is probably a story for another time. But it also relates to women without kids, because if we'd have had if we had children, him being at the time at the time, my income was pretty low. I hadn't sort of pivoted into my new my current sort of bread and butter work, which is working as a manuscript coach um, and sort of publishing consultant, which is going really well. I was still looking for what the next thing was. So my income was really patchy because I'd just been doing bits of journalism, written a couple of books that had done okay, but not amazing. Um, but his, and obviously in the in the US, your health insurance, healthcare is tied to your employment. So when he decided to just quit cold turkey and take the leap out of corporate hell, I think if we had had kids, I don't know if he'd have been able to do that you know I think that him knowing that well we don't have dependents there's no college fund that's being contributed to if we have like the shittiest cheapest health insurance then okay it's only us who are at risk yeah I think that not having children actually freed him to finally take that leap and and quit corporate hell for good and he's still in the process of kind of navigating life after corporate hell but um and obviously then the pandemic hit, which kind of was a whole other yeah. curveball <laughs> career-wise. Um, so, yeah, but I do think that, um, yeah, not having kids sort of gave him the freedom to take that risk as well. I also think there's a very particular, I don't know if PTSD is the right word here, but there's a very specific PTSD type situation after you leave that world. And it always reminds me, you just it's so rigid. You don't realise the confines within which you're working. And it reminds me of that scene in Shawshank where Morgan Freeman's character has to ask permission to go to the loo. Right. I can't remember the film. The I've only watched store. it years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's that that thing of you don't realise how many sort of rules you're following and how actually you've you've surrendered some autonomy and agency just by being within those sorts of... And I wasn't in a corporate job, but my God, there were restrictions and things in place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, yes we come out and we're still living by the same rules, even though the people we're no longer kind of under the rule of the people imposing the rules. Yes. <laughs> We've internalized them to the extent that it feels like this is the only way to operate. It can take so long to unlearn that corporate mentality mm-hmm. when you've been in it for, you know, decades. It was decades yeah. by the, by the time that he left. So yeah, it's been a slow unlearning for him and it's ongoing. And yeah, I think that as a child free couple, I've been able to double down on my work and step in, step up financially, which has been, yeah, really, really important for both of us. Mm. And I don't know if I'd have been able to do that had I also been a parent, you know? Yeah. I ask my guests to tell me about an excuse that they make for themselves, because I think we can often put these in place and your answer might be one of my favorite answers that I've had back to this because um, you said, you, you do have an excuse if you like, but you said, but I think it's more of a limiting belief. I don't really make excuses. And so you said that your success will hurt other people or make people feel bad. Hmm. Right. Yeah. 
I loved you. I loved your questions, actually. <laughs> good, good. They're I'm really pleased. good. <laughs> and I'm glad you're reading them back to me because I can't remember what I said. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I think it's more of a kind of, in terms of I don't make excuses, like I'm pretty good at being really honest with myself about what's happening um, and taking responsibility, I suppose, for my own actions. Um, I think I've got better at that even or clearer around that since quitting drinking, removing alcohol has just given me so much more clarity about why I behave the way I do, the impact of my actions um, on myself and others, you know, um, and yeah, it, it has made me take more responsibility, but I think I've always been that way inclined. Certainly I'm, I can't really, I can't really stand dishonesty. Like even if it's just sort of white lies or like, Un- untruths by omission you know mm. makes me feel really uncomfortable um so this this ex- this isn't I guess it came up because it felt like is this an excuse for not putting myself out there more or not um I don't know it's almost like because I'm quite good at putting myself out there too like I definitely with every book I'm really good at outreach like the reason I managed to do well in my well in my career in journalism is because I was always knocking on doors always putting myself forward for stuff um like that situation in Ibiza making sure I was introducing myself to the right people etc etc um but there's something about not wanting to stand up and say listen to me because what I've got to say is really important or my work is actually really really top notch and you need to be paying attention (laughs) right there's some kind of like yeah <laughs> around that and there's an element of particularly in the UK we hear about this tall poppy syndrome like the idea that once somebody gets quote unquote too big for their boots or is shining too brightly there's sort of a knee-jerk tendency to bring them back down to size or put them back in their place and when I mentioned earlier actually that the the there's an attitudinal difference between London and New York that's sort of what it boils down to in New York, people want to align themselves with successful people. Like your success makes me look better. I want to shine in your globe and you take me with you kind of thing. <laughs> Whereas in London, not so much. Um, and I think actually, but I do think I've got a big fear of other people being envious of me and wanting to attack me or pull me down if I if I appear to be too successful or if my success is sort of making them aware of the fact that they're less successful or less fortunate or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I've been, that was, it was interesting to to think about that. And is that an excuse for not sort of like really blowing my own trumpet, I suppose, um, in ways that I actually feel quite justified to do. I know I'm a really good writer. I know my books are excellent and I know this because people tell me all the time in my DMs how much <laughs> they've been impacted by my work, how much they love my writing, how much they're enjoying my work. I also think the things I'm talking about, you know, this whole reevaluation of our relationship with alcohol, the really deep influences around why there are so many more women without kids. These are really important global issues of national interest, which have a huge impact on people's well-being, on the way that people's lives play out, on the way that we interact with one another. And they're still not necessarily taken as that serious, I don't think, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Something to do with me being a woman, something to be, do with me being a small blonde woman. Um, I don't know. 
Um, but yeah, there's something as well. Like, so I have two brothers, one brother with the same mother and one half brother, both of whom have had kind of health issues. Um, my brother got very sick when he was very young and was always quite sickly and quite sort of needy as a child. And so his needs were always just more kind of important than mine. I also am much more academically minded than him and always, always did much better in school. Um, and I sort of, my mum has even said to me before, you know, you have an unfair advantage over your brother in terms of how well I've done in life. Um, so I think, I, I think I've always felt, felt like that. Like I can't, I can't sort of, you know, outshine him in a way. And then my half brother is very, very severely disabled. It was a whole other level of sort of almost like survivor guilt. You know, I can't, the better I do, the more it highlights how, difficult his life is and so again with that just a kind of tendency to downplay my talents downplay my achievements um and just sort of live quite small within what I do I suppose mm. so I'm trying to I'm trying to overcome that and realize that yeah my success doesn't take away from anybody else's success if anything the better I do the more I'm going to have to offer to, back to my family members and you know, um, yeah, the more they get to also bask in the glow of my success, you know. I just, I really appreciated your response. I thought, found it so thoughtful because I think actually excuses are fairly obvious. That you can be in denial, but like you can say, you can make an excuse for yourself. You kind of know that you're making an excuse for yourself on some level, you're conscious mm. of it. But mm. a limiting belief is a little bit more sinister, I think, which is why I was really glad that you called it out because you might not actually see a limiting belief as holding you back because you believe it so much to be true. Mm. And you don't know that when you're saying it, you're actually um, hindering yourself at all. Right. Yeah, exactly. They're often unconscious mm. of limiting beliefs. They've been sort of braided into our being just through observations, through noticing how our actions impact on others and then kind of adjusting our actions accordingly. These are the sorts of things that create the belief that me being successful makes other people feel bad, you know? And if mm. I'm operating unconsciously on that belief, then I'm going to play down my success and in, worse, in, in, in more extreme scenarios, maybe even self-sabotage, so that I don't like get too big for my boots or, you know, outshine other people too brightly um, mm. because that's going to hurt them. It's going to cause upset. Mm. And I think we all have beliefs that are kind of like encoded into us or have been sort of like imprinted in us, I suppose. And I think that, yeah, again, my work with Sober Curious was so good in kind of helping me develop the mindset because I was really applying just really unpicking um, from a very observer sort of mindset, all of the beliefs that we have around alcohol and drinking. And so going through that process, um, yeah, I sort of apply that to every area of my life now. But again, I think I kind of already sort of approach life a bit that way, <laughs> sort of my personality, but um, working on that book and with that subject matter particularly really turned up the volume on my ability to be able to notice, kind of take a step back and notice what's causing this behavior, what's really behind the way I feel about this, what's behind the thoughts I'm having about this, where does that come from, you know? Mm -hmm. And it, we can apply that to every area of life, I think. 
Not to be a complete and total copycat, but long-time listeners will know that I also had a, a complete change in attitude towards alcohol. And maybe you and I have had a similar journey insofar as when I landed in the world of journalism back in the early 2000s, I mean, if you weren't somewhat inebriated at all times, you weren't doing it right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, okay, I write good. about this. I'll send you a copy of Sober Curious too, because I think there's probably a lot, of, it seems like there are actually already a lot of similarities in our lives. But yeah, and I and I think that, yes, yeah, so I got my first magazine job in, well, it was a, a, a dot com at the time. Of course, it went busty after a year, but like <laughs> in like 2000 and then went to work for like teen magazines. So yeah. And it was like every night of the week, there was some launch or other where there was free flowing, free alcohol. And I do think that the fact that I didn't pay for the alcohol I was drinking meant that I drank a lot more than I would have otherwise and developed a very good or powerful resist, like um, capacity for alcohol. I could drink a lot. I was always the one at the end of the night or the next day when everyone would be like, you didn't even seem drunk last night. And I think I just, yeah, I developed quite a, a strong, a high capacity for, for alcohol, but that wasn't a good thing necessarily <laughs> no not at all and weirdly it was like if you couldn't well I definitely in magazine jobs I had if you were had to wait in for a delivery and so you couldn't be in the office there'd be text messages all the time you know on your flip phone where are you where are you but if you had text message and said I'm in bed hung over like fine come in tomorrow and it was just like it was a completely it was like a badge of honor yeah, yeah. Well, it was this so... was also we we came of age in the era of the ladettes and against the whole cool, the backdrop of cool Britannia, which was such a hedonistic kind of end of century period, you know, um, it really was. I do actually looking back, I'm like, you know, the millennium bug, everyone was really worried that the world was going to end on midnight on 1999 because all of the the digital communications that were now running our <laughs> systems were all going to like, weren't going to realize what, how to do like a new century. <laughs> And everything yeah. was going to end. The world was going to end. And it did like that. The late 90s into early 2000s had this kind of end of days feeling of like, we might as well just party now, party like it's 1999 and just fuck tomorrow. You know, who knows? Because you don't know where we're going. So, yeah, it was a very hedonistic time. And drinking, I mean, if anything, drinking heavily was feminist. It was seen as like a way to kind of keep up with the guys, you know. So that was, I think, the indoctrination that we got around alcohol as Gen X women. Totally. It's like you don't walk into an event with a nice handbag. You walk into an event holding a bottle of Jack Daniels or a bottle of right. champagne that you've been swigging in the taxi. And that is cool. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but like you, I think a few years ago, I just thought, actually, I really like feeling well. I really like feeling clear headed. I like working out in the morning. And what's mm -hmm. one thing that consistently means that that's not the case it's alcohol yeah yeah and this is what i mean about like we can make so many excuses in order to keep alcohol in our life mm -hmm. so many um and for me again i think why was i the person to coin the term sober curious and kind of tell normal social drinkers hey it's okay not to drink like why me i think because i can't stand living out of integrity like the cognitive dissonance between alcohol is something i use to relax and unwind and have fun but alcohol, the reality of alcohol is that it makes me feel like shit, robs half the hours of my day and is contributing massively to my depression and anxiety. This is the reality. Live, I can't live with that kind of cognitive dissonance before for very long before mm. I have to act on it and I have to make a change. 
so yeah that was that was how sober curious kind of came about because i did go to a couple of aa meetings and because the received wisdom back then was that if you were questioning your drinking it meant you're an alcoholic no but i couldn't relate to the way that alcoholism as the chronic disease was presented and spoken about, it didn't feel like my truth. I knew that I had just got too attached to a highly addictive and widely available substance and that I just had to get unattached to it. And the way to get unattached to it was to A, stop drinking it, but B, most importantly, really examine why am I drinking it and why do I have the, why do I believe that alcohol is essential, an essential component to living a fulfilled, happy, joyful life? Where does that come from? Where do those beliefs come from? And so that was what the Sober Curious path was all about for me. And I do think what's really interesting now is I speak to women in their early 30s or friends of mine who are in their early 30s who are saying things like, I'm in the program. They've had exactly the same revelation as perhaps you and I have had, but they Mm. have almost like medicalized or pathologized it. And it's like, it's not enough to just make a conscious decision not to drink anymore. It's about being in in the program. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, but that that's possibly a euphemism for being in AA. And I think that there are some people who um, benefit from having more of a structured kind of path out of or path to the next thing. I'm quite as as we've, you know, as we've acknowledged, I'm quite good at just sort of taking a leap and figuring it out as I go along. And in fact, I prefer the freedom of that to figure out what works for me. I can start to feel quite quickly boxed in. Um, when there are too many rules and regulations and AA and other recovery programs have a lot of rules and regulations, but some people need that. Some people need those guideposts, you know, mm. but I know a lot of people who are in quote unquote in the program and who actively dislike a lot of things about the program. Oh, interesting. <laughs> but again, I'm like, so why do it that way then? You know, there's an, there are other ways. <laughs> well, it's really interesting you say that because again, not being a copycat, but I've also had real issues with eating disorder and disordered eating, however you want to describe it. Mm. And I'm writing about it at the moment and someone just came back to me and said, we really need a bit more information about your recovery. And my recovery doesn't have a formula. It was, right. I realized I realized it, didn't want to do that again. So I stopped doing that. And so right. I guess I just sort of slowed down every day. And instead of my uh, my definite thing was um, binge eating, restricting mm-hmm. and then binge eating. So mm-hmm. it was just taking a bit of a beat before every time I ate and thinking what's really going on here. That's not really a sexy recovery that you can sort of wrap up and sell. Right. That's the truth of it. Yeah, it's yeah. not a method. Yeah, right. And I, But I think that just even... I actually think offering that will be really helpful to people because I think there is no one size fits answer, one size fits all answer to these sorts of life transformations and behavior shifts that we all need to make at some point. We can all get too Mm. attached to different behaviors, thoughts, beliefs, some of which can become very toxic. Um, We all find ourselves in those situations. And I don't think there's necessarily one program that works for everyone. And I think actually the most important, the most probably, um, what's the word, impactful, successful, realistic way to approach these things is kind of what you're describing. Just like really, really cultivate your self-awareness around the behavior that you want to change. Um, and then really address that, 
that behavior, like do, don't do that thing, you know, <laughs> which sounds so simple and is obviously a lot harder than it mm. sounds, can be a lot harder than it sounds. Um, and there are things that can be very supportive. I do think that just talking about it openly with other people, whether it's one-on-one to a therapist, whether it's in a, a support group of sorts, or even just among trusted friends, I think exposing it to the light by communicating about it is very important. You're giving yourself accountability when you do that, you know, um, and it becomes much harder once you've spoken something to then continue to live with any cognitive dissonance around that. Like if I say, if I say to somebody, I am not drinking for the next six months because you know, because these reasons list the reasons, because I want to feel better in my body. I want to sleep better. I don't want to feel attached to this thing. And then you continue to do it. It's like your psyche and your body know that you're lying to yourself. It's no longer kind of just an internal lie. It's out there in the world. And (laughs) it just is, it does give you an extra layer of accountability, which is why one of the reasons I think that, you know, 12 step recovery groups are really helpful because there's so much accountability, you know, um, Mm but that it can come with a lot of restriction. When you drive a vehicle so reliable, it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I asked you what you said your greatest success was, and I love that you said quitting drinking and spearheading the sober, (laughs) curious movement and the fact that I was wondering, I I wrote underneath that, my note was, was it about doing it for yourself? But then how did it feel when you realized it had spread? Because there must have been a huge amount of satisfaction making that difference in your life and feeling and seeing that difference. But then it spreads like wildfire and you're hearing from other people that actually what you went through, what you channeled into the book has changed their lives too. Yeah, incredibly satisfying. I think it's my biggest success because it's just felt like, a a, a 100% net positive for everybody involved. And I remember even thinking that when I was writing the book. And and so the book was preceded by a few years of me hosting regular events in New York and in London, um, where I would have panel discussions and sort of invite people into conversation around this subject. Um, And I just remember being really, in the beginning, quite afraid that by suggesting that if you were questioning your drinking, you didn't have to be in recovery. You didn't have to call yourself an alcoholic. You didn't, maybe you didn't need this specific program. I remember being really afraid that I would in fact be endangering people's lives because the messaging really was like, if someone is an alcoholic, they need to be in recovery and they need to get help or they're going to end up dead. Ultimately, that's, that's kind of how stark the messaging is. Mm. Um, But as I began to see, feel the impact in my own life, get reflected back to me how it was impacting other people's lives, I began to realize, wait a minute, there is absolutely, there's like nothing, there's no negative to telling people, hey, it's okay to look at your drinking and to make a change. Mm -hmm. There's no negative to someone removing alcohol from their life, like none whatsoever. (laughs) So that really kind of emboldened me to go bigger with the message and to really continue to put it out there. And um, yeah, I just know from my own life, 
what an incredible ripple effect me addressing my drinking has had on my husband, my other family members, friends, like so many people have been positively impacted by me kind of shamelessly and openly talking about this, making this part of my life, meaning so many other people in my immediate circle have also changed the way that they drink, changed the way they think about drink, they've done long periods of abstinence, got completely sober. And so I see the ripple effect. And then I'm imagining how each of their change in habits is impacting their families and the people in their community and their workplace. And I think about that every time I get a message from someone on social media or an email telling me what huge impact just removing alcohol, just this one thing. Mm. Wow. It's impacted every area of my life. And I know it's impacted every individual in your life also in a positive way. And so that just feels incredibly, yeah, it just feels like pat on the back job. Well done. (laughs) I think I can like blow my own trumpet a bit there and be like, yeah, that was a really worthwhile thing we did, you know? Which is why I can understand when I said, what was your, what's been your biggest challenge? You said writing my new book, Women Without Kids, because going from that to that, having had such a positive result and such a huge impact, it's a, it's quite a gear shift. Yeah. Um, and then writing the new book was a challenge for so many reasons on so many levels. Um, first of all, I kind of want, not, not that I wanted to li- it to live up to Sober Curious, but there is pressure from agent, publisher and stuff like, oh, is this book going to do as well or be as successful, popular or whatever? Um, I didn't necessarily, that, that wasn't like, it wasn't weighing on me too much just because I knew I really needed to write this book for myself first and foremost, but also I was just so fascinated by the broader implications of the subject, but there were multiple challenges First of all, um, writing it during the pandemic, (laughs) it was very, um, it was a very pressure cooker sort of writing environment, you know, years of social distancing. I didn't see my family in person for two years. And that was the whole period I was writing it. And there's a lot of kind of quite vulnerable family stuff in the book. Um, Kind of trying to speak to or knowing that I wanted to speak to people from across what I call the motherhood spectrum, people who've actively chosen not to have children, people who are on the fence, people who are maybe would like to, but haven't found the right circumstances and people who've been unable to have children. I wanted to speak to everybody who identifies as a woman without kids. And I think, again, I'd kind of been led to believe that these life paths are so different and the emotional impact is so different that these are very different scenarios and you can't really speak to everybody in one book but I really wanted to because I wanted to heal some of the divides that exist among women without kids and among you know mums and non-mums or help to heal rather um and then just I mean I just don't think I really when I started writing it knew how big of a subject or really realized how big of a subject this is I remember getting about halfway through and I was a bit like oh my god (laughs) this is a book about what it means to be a human being, um, how our society got where our society is, where the human race is going. <laughs> this is These are like the biggest picture kind of subjects mm. as you can get, but it makes sense because actually bringing a new human being into the world is about the biggest decision that you can make. Like it really is. I remember having a conversation with a friend in the early in the writing process and she was sort of, she was 
kind of umming and ahhing on the fence. Should I, shouldn't I? And she said, I just can't stop thinking that this is like probably one of the only decisions that you can't unmake. You know, Mm. this is like one of the only things you can't undo. And I think it's true. Like it, it really is. And it's life, it's life and death. And like, not only are you going to impact and change the trajectory of your own life forever, but you're bringing a whole other person onto the planet whose life is 1000% impacted by that decision. Um, and so not to be a decision taken lightly, which goes against so much of what we hear, which again is like, you were built to do this. Nobody yep. get nobody, no, nobody ever feels like it's the right time. It's never the right time. Nobody gets a manual. You'll just figure it out. Like it's, there's such a blase kind of attitude to this decision. Like just go for it. When actually it's the biggest decision we can make. <laughs> I'm obsessed with, so the only reality show that I watch is Love is Blind. It's so weird. <laughs> I think it's just because I love love and I get so emotional like watching them fall in love Ruby, and it's just like I watch all the other ones it's fine <laughs> I just I love it but I also kind of it's so weird though because like I said I never I never like envisaged having a wedding I never thought I would get married but um I do find a lot of value in my marriage anyway <laughs> I love it but um, Vanessa Lachey, who's one of the co-hosts, is obsessed, obsessed with who, and this is how she phrases it, who is going to give Auntie Vanessa my first, my first love is blind baby. And it's just so that the phrasing of that is so sort of symbolic, I think, of society's attitude towards people having children. Mm. When are you individual with your body and your womb and your life force going to give us our next baby? And I don't know. I just think that that's so, um, yeah, it's a really outmoded, again, unconscious sort of attitude that I think is really up for interrogation at this point in our human trajectory. So yeah, the book was the book was difficult to write for all of those reasons. And I think, yeah, just, I really wanted it to be well-researched. I wanted it to feel quite as watertight as possible in terms of the arguments I was making, but that meant I had to go really deep and like leave no stone unturned. Um, and then, <laughs> and then once I'd completed my first draft of the manuscript, I wanted to share it with my parents um, just to check that they were happy with everything that was going into the book. And they weren't. And there were some very painful, very challenging conversations with both of them um, about what, quote unquote, really happened, you know, in my childhood. And that was really illuminating in the end. And ultimately, I feel much closer to both of them as a result. So it was a very it felt like a necessary thing to do actually, but it was incredibly painful in the moment, really emotionally challenging. As listeners will know, I often ask um, my guests, tell me about a time when you were wrong. And that's something you referenced. You said showing the book to my parents was something that brought up a lot. It was incredibly painful, but in the end, actually incredibly healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just, um, there's a chapter called Home Truths. And it really talks about how, you know, we've all, there are all, there are skeletons in all of our closets. Um, 80% of people say that they come from a dysfunctional family, which suggests that actually <laughs> a degree of dysfunction is how families function. Well, <laughs> but, Dr. Nicole LaPera says every family is a dysfunctional family, which right. is, I think, probably bang on, right? Right, exactly. 
Um, meaning there are skeletons in closets. There are stories that have been perpetuated to kind of make stuff okay that wasn't really okay. Um, coping mechanisms that have been deployed that actually can become quite um, limiting and quite abusive in some situations. That's family life, actually. Um, and yet we have this incredibly sentimentalized vision of family life as being the kind of, you know, I'm putting my hand on my heart as I say it, but like the the fireplace that we gather around to get comfort and nourishment. And that's actually just not the truth for a lot of people. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I look in the book at, at how our upbringing, and in particular, how we were mothered, might impact our feelings about becoming mothers, which is such an unexplored and unexamined topic. But my research showed me that actually for many women who have actively chosen not to have children or really questioned if they want that or who were struggling in their role as mothers some kind of there is there has been something in their relationship with their mum that's kind of impacted their feelings about being a mother and their experience of as being a mother and so I really wanted to write about all of that but of course that meant writing a lot about my relationship with my mum and what I realized in terms of where I was wrong what I realized is (laughs) Because what we do as human beings is we have an experience and then we tell ourselves a story about what happened to make sense of it and put it in the past. And we kind of live with that's the story of how that was. And what I realized is that in most families, we've all got different stories about what happened because we're all individuals within that family system. But we've all made up these stories about like, that's how mom was. That's how dad was. This is how the family was. And actually, all of our stories are often quite different. There might be some overlap. <laughs> there are some kind of, you know, empirical truths we lived here. Um, but in terms of just relationship dynamics and motivations and and sometimes even like what happened when and <clears throat> to whom and who was impacted, these things can, I don't know, they can really differ from indiv- between individuals. And so what I was confronted with in sharing the manuscript with my parents was the, the, the yeah, where, where our stories don't really match up, <laughs> you know, you're, and you're a lot making- of like, hurt, and a lot of hurt feelings where mm. the stories didn't match up, where, where, where it was perceived that there was misunderstanding or um, an appreciation or also you know all the sorts of things that can kind of come up in those situations you're making me think of the uh statement from buckingham palace recollections may vary because <laughs> it's true that's, isn't it? that's true recollections i would say recollections do will vary mm. the human memory is a very slippery thing and it is constantly manipulating facts to protect us ultimately to um cushion the blow of things that were potentially painful disruptive Mm. confusing etc etc and so yeah (laughs) it was challenging but as I said ultimately actually daring to have those conversations and to compare our stories led to just a much deeper understanding on both sides about what happened Mm-hmm. why it happened the impact of what happened um and yeah just a lot of clarity actually it really felt like cleaning house in some mm. ways yeah it's making me think of a conversation i had on this podcast with dr tracy shores who's an expert in trauma 
Mm-hmm. And she's, talk, she's talking about memory. And I would have said up until that conversation with Tracy a couple of years ago, that my memories were like a video of what happened, like that I was playing back. But what she explained is, it's like when you go into a Word document or other documents and it auto saves as you're typing. So Mm. your memories are constantly being added to and changed. Mm -hmm. And actually they're not the, the VHS video of exactly what happened that you think they are. They have morphed, they have changed, the colors have changed, the smell, everything has somewhat updated. And so you can't trust that as fact. And I was like, oh God, I've been really indignant about my recollection about things in the past. Because I was like, no, this is definitely what happened. Because I didn't understand that um, what I was saying wasn't factually 100% correct. Right, right. That's such a good way to think about it. Like there are old versions. And I wonder if then in some sort of therapeutic um, modalities are designed to kind of help you look back at the old saved versions like the versions that have been saved over that kind of feels to me like because when I think about opening a word document and kind of looking at all the changes it just looks like (laughs) a total mess yes but that kind of is quite a good metaphor for the unconscious I suppose like that soup of words and experiences and recollections that's some that's all in there um and that's having some kind of influence still over our on our experiences overall and our recollections. Yeah, it's mm. so fascinating. But I kind of got a, an actual <laughs> real-time lived experience of that in having my parents dissect the manuscript. I remember my mum at one point sent me like a seven-page document, corrections. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and they weren't all quote-unquote factual. They were about feelings, mm. in, in, in um, you know, insinuations, Um yeah, it was very, it was, it was kind of fascinating. And like I said, I'm really glad that we've done it. I, I think that a lot of people would benefit from being able to have those kind of conversations with their parents. But unless you're, you know, unless you're going to go into group therapy together, you're probably never going to have the forum to do it. And so I'm so grateful that I, because there were parts of when, even when I was writing and in a way it was helpful having, not having helpful having the pandemic, but the fact I didn't see, I wasn't able to see them in person for the, mm. the whole time I was writing because I didn't really want to bring it up on the phone. <laughs> By the way, I'm putting this in my book. <laughs> I kind of wanted to have those conversations in person. Um, and so I was I was kind of, I took the road of, I'm just going to put it in because I feel like it needs to be in there. And I'll worry about it later. Mm. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'll yeah. worry about how, it's, how they're going to feel about it later, knowing that I won't put anything into the book that anyone's uncomfortable with. You mm. know? Again, that's making me think about uh, Julia Samuel's book where it's all about sort of having these multi-generational family therapy sessions on Zoom. Actually, that made it a whole lot easier in how learning the story of your family. Um, There's something to be said, but how do you have that? How do you broach this conversation? How do you have those conversations without the lubricant of a manuscript? (laughs) Right. It was a really good excuse. Yeah. Because I think the, the group, the family Zoom therapy sessions sound amazing too, but everyone's sort of got to be on board for that or believe that it's going to be worth the time, effort, money, et cetera, et cetera, Mm. to engage with that. Um, So, which is again, not necessarily going to be the case. And I I mentioned that my mum, you know, trained as a psychotherapist, having been in therapy herself um, for most of her forties, Um, And I think that her therapeutic training kind of gave her the capacity not to just shut me down. Um, Mm. 
when I broached all of this, when I brought this to her, you know, she was able to, as difficult as it was, stay with me in it. And I think understand the value in it. Mm. As opposed to think I'm being accused as opposed of something to just, I've done wrong. How dare you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which yeah. I could imagine would be the sort of obvious emotional response to something like that. I completely yeah. understandable. And there were some of those responses, but she was well-versed enough in how our psychology works to see what was going on and to know it was worth sticking with it. The book is so, as you say, comprehensive. You No stone has been left unturned. But as, as a reader, I was very definitely informed about something that obviously... I sit in as a 45-year-old woman who doesn't want children and doesn't regret not having children. Um, but I I still was wondering if it's okay to have a fairly simple response to the question. Do you want to have kids? No, I don't. Why? And to be honest, for me, it normally comes down to financial, right. <laughs> truthfully. Um, mm. Or if I'm trying to end the conversation quickly, I just say, honestly, I've thought about it. I would be a terrible mother. And then that kind of, that does tend to end things. But even though I've seen all of these different perspectives that you've shared, I probably would, it still feels quite a simple decision. I just, I just don't want it in the same way as if you said to me, and when I was a kid, do you want that? Do you want those vegetables? I said, no, I don't like them. It's, it still feels quite short. Is that still okay? Definitely. And I've even been thinking a little more differently not differently but like as I've so the other thing is I wrote this book in isolation I've only really been talking to people about it since it's come out and it's been so amazing to be in conversation about it and of course it's helped develop my ideas even more like just being speaking to people about it and one thing that came up recently so I've been so in the book I describe people like people like you and I as being in the affirmative no camp of motherhood this is a no that's right for me right um, and there are affirmative yeses who are people who are like, I've always wanted to be a mother. It's absolutely my path. It's my vocation. And then there are everybody else who's somewhere in between, which I think is like, honestly, the majority of women. Um, and I've kind of started using the term a reproductive to describe myself. I didn't have this term when I was writing the book, which I'm really annoyed about because it kind of, mm. it really, for me, because all the way through, I was like, oh, childless doesn't feel right because like that's sort of applied to people who would like to have a child and Mm. couldn't child free has always felt a little bit too kind of carefree and like this is something I haven't really thought about of course I've thought about it though it's like um I didn't really identify with that but for me a reproductive like asexual just no desire to engage with the reproductive elements of my sexuality to me, that strips away the emotional kind of content of childless or child-free. And it just describes how I'm made mm. the same way that other people might describe their sexuality. I'm heterosexual, I'm a-reproductive, right? <laughs> um, my husband even said it the other day, I haven't used this term in conversation with him, I don't think, or maybe I dropped it in, but he was like, um, I think he'd been in a situation, a work situation where someone had been saying to him, but why don't you have children? Why don't you have children? And he he found himself thinking, if I'd have said I was gay, you wouldn't be saying, but why are you gay? But why don't you, why don't, why don't, do you only want to have sex with men? And it's kind of on a similar, like it just, it's just who I am. It's just how I'm made. What can I tell you? (laughs) You know? (laughs) 
Yeah. So that has been like a helpful, and the, there is a section where I talk about this emerging concept of reproductive identity, which is actually call, calling for a much more nuanced and specific and individualistic ways of describing how we have chosen or not chosen to engage with our procreative potential and with the vocation of parenting. And for me, a reproductive is a term that fits me and my positionality on that motherhood spectrum, but also within the realm of reproductive identity. And what I hope is that as we have more conversations like this, more people are going to find their own terminology that describes, you know, we've already got yeah, childless by choice, child free, childless, not by choice, childless by circumstance, you know, just childless is in most of those descriptions. Um, I also discovered the word nullipara, which means is the medical term for a woman who's never given birth. Yes. Um, so I was kind of like, oh, and then nulliparous would be, you know, the um, adjective for that. So I'm I'm nulliparous, which is a bit of a weird word. A, re- a reproductive works for me. But I yes, I think maybe letter. you could just say to people now, oh, I'm a rep- I identify as a reproductive, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I had that, on that goes down. The, yeah, on the from the hospital once, and I was like, what Latin is what? this? No, what's it? What, what on earth? And I had to look it up, and I felt <laughs> that's a new one to add to the list. Well, same. Like as somebody who had reached my kind of early mid forties, having having embodied this a reproductive identity, I was shocked when I discovered the word nullipara because I'd never heard that word. Yeah. Um, yeah. So fascinating. I'm interested to ask you about this because a friend of mine said this to me a few years ago and I had never, ever considered it. She's uh, 15 years older than me, has never wanted children. But a few years ago, she said, the thing you have to understand, Emma, is that when your friends who do want children have kids, you lose them for five years, but then they come Mm -hmm. back. And I hadn't, I kind of thought, well, yes, I think that's somewhat true, but also maybe not entirely. And then the other day I was at a friend's house and her son walked down the stairs and I realized I hadn't seen the last time I saw him was when she was breastfeeding him. And there is actually a part of your friends' lives when they have children. If you don't have kids, you're not excluded from in any kind of weird way, but there is a separation. And it Mm -hmm. was so that thing that was said to me a few years ago just came into stark reality when he just walked down the stairs. I was like, hello. Oh, yes. No, I haven't seen you for about five years. Okay, great. (laughs) She was absolutely right. Do you think that's true? I think it's maybe, yes. Yes, on some levels I do. Um, It's very generalistic because Mm. that's not the case with everybody and it's not the case in every situation. Um, But yeah, I think there's some truth to that. Absolutely. And I think the more that we can just sort of, again, remove the emotional content of the fact that we're not seeing someone or spending as much time with someone or we don't feel like we've got, our lives have got as much in common anymore remove maybe the feelings of rejection or isolation or even abandonment that can sort mm. of come with that um or on the path on the heart behalf of the person who's become a parent um I was on Clemmie Telford's podcast and she was the first mum who openly expressed to me yeah one of the reasons I don't really hang around with my child free friends is that I'm just really envious <laughs> and I'm like thank you for your honesty because I feel that and I do yeah. think that there's an element of kind of like I actually don't want to be exposed to your freedom and autonomy when I feel like all of mine has been taken away from me. So there's a lot of emotions at play in those, in that shift. So I think if we can downplay the emotions and just kind of dispassionately observe what's happening, 
the person who's become a parent is going to have the lion's share of their time, energy, and other resources being needed to be put into their role as a parent until their child is independent enough where they're not kind of literally on them all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's just the practical reality of the situation. Um, If we can both be conscious of that and stay in contact with voice note and text and in whatever ways we can express that we're still there for each other, we still love each other during that period, fantastic, all the better. Um, And then, you know, when the time comes, we'll be able to hang out some more. That said, I also write in the book about how I've realized, because I've been told this, um, that actually my mum friends really value having a friend who's not a parent, who they can kind of get to pretend they're not a parent with as well. (laughs) You know, there's um, some, I, I feel like I represent the person they were without their kids or the woman that they are without their kids. Um, and I mean, I have friends who I've actually never met their children because they make time to spend with me basically because they want and need to have a couple of hours where they're not talking about their child and they're not the mum, you know, um, and that's incredibly valuable to them. Um, I've been thinking a lot more, and I don't know if I express this specifically in this way in the book, I probably do, but I do think, you know, Gen X women, I definitely talk about this, but Gen X women and so millennials and Gen Zs after us were the first generation of women to really be brought up and raised on the message. You can do whatever you want with your life. You can Mm. get an education, you can follow a career, you can travel, you can choose who your lovers are. You can have multiple lovers, like a huge amount of freedom and autonomy and self-authorship that wasn't available to previous generations of women. And so I think one of the reasons so many women of our generation and younger are being challenged in motherhood is that it is a loss of a lot more freedom mm. than women previously even had in the first place. Yeah. For women of my mother, my mother says she found her identity in motherhood. She didn't have the same kind of freedom and opportunities to lose. And so she found something in addition, like motherhood was an addition to her life. Mm. Whereas for, for a woman who's had a career, who's traveled the world, who's had multiple partners and loves to then be truly truly in the truest sense tied down by her role as a mother will feel like a loss will induce grieving um but a loss and grief that she's not allowed to feel because this is supposed to be the most fulfilling thing Mm -hmm. and I think doing away with that idea and acknowledging you have sacrificed lost so much in becoming a mother is actually incredibly important for mums to hear. And I've heard so many mums who have read the book say that they received that message and were so grateful for for them because it helped them to feel like they weren't, it didn't make them a bad mother, the fact that they sometimes longed Mm. for the life they had before they became mums. Yeah, there's a book, I forget who the author is, but I think the book is about motherhood and it's called What Have I Done? And like you said earlier, you can't, it's the thing that you can't undo. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but it was, uh, I remember someone saying to me, I picked up this book and I felt really bad picking up this book, but like, you do think that. Right. Of course. (laughs) Naturally. (laughs) Yes. And again, being- Of course, becoming a mother, it does, it does, you are adding something to your life, but that addition requires a loss of so much, Mm. you know? Yeah. I could talk to you for flipping hours. Right. Okay. (sighs) Um, I'm going to, as I do with all my guests, just ask you what makes you hopeful about the future. And you said, 
unplugging from media, legacy and social media and spending time with friends. What is it about that that makes you hopeful? Oh, I don't know. I guess um, I've just really been noticing how when we're spending too much time engaging with the media, whether it's news, online news, social media, lifestyle media even, we are, the more time we spend there, the less time we are actually present in our life. Mm. And also the world out there, as it is being reported on currently in this clickbait world, is pretty scary and depressing and alarming and yeah, I mean, I've just been listening to Ezra Klein's latest podcast, which is all about, you know, the teen mental health crisis. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> because the more time you're online, the the scarier, the harsher, the more divided the world appears, you know, mm. um, even if we're reading supposedly positive articles about how to maximize your productivity or how to be happy, it's the implication is that we're unproductive and unhappy in our natural state. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, I just know that the more I can kind of, the more local I can get in terms of my interactions, the more I can actually be interacting with three-dimensional human beings, experiencing the world in our immediate environment, the better I feel. And that's, I don't know, it's just become more and more clear, I suppose. I'm sure that the pandemic um, contributed to that, like not being able to be with humans and so mm -hmm. much of our interaction being online. Um but yeah, so it makes me hopeful for the future because I think more and more we're having more conversations about this. And I think people are recognizing that actually our in-person interactions, activities, communities are so vital to who we are as human beings, you know? Um, and as much as the allure, the addictive allure of social, not all, not just social media, but all media, honestly, mm. um, is very powerful and potent, I think we are, yeah, I think we're going to get better at actively resisting that and prioritizing our human connections in the future. I hope anyway. I hope so too. Ruby, I knew this is going to be an amazing conversation. Honestly, it could go on for about four hours and we could get really deep and really <laughs> personal about all sorts of things, but our time together. Maybe, another time. Maybe we'll have to meet up in person one time and have that conversation just for us. I think we absolutely should. Um, listeners, uh, the links to Ruby's books, will be in the show notes as will the links to the numinous your social media everything that people might want to click onto in order to follow engage buy from you but it has been such a pleasure to, to chat to you thank you so much for spending the time on the show well thanks for having me it's been wonderful and i do hope you get to meet in person one day same 100 percent Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one.